Executive Director of Sideline USA. Today, I'll be interviewing Aaron Walters, who is a Sideline athlete. Aaron, welcome. And if you don't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us where you reside, uh, what sport you played, and what you do currently. Sure. Um, my, I live in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago. I played soccer both in college and in the pros, and currently I own a marketing company here in the suburbs of Chicago. Awesome. So you were sidelined many years ago. Um, tell us your story uh, and just flesh it out for us. Give us your experience. Sure. So I started playing soccer when I was maybe four or five, like most people. Uh, when they get into sports, they start young. I played because my brother played, and I wanted to do everything that he did. And uh, I was fortunate enough, um, had a good high school career, had a great group of girls that I played with and some great coaching, um, was all state in high school, ended up moving on to college. I played at DePaul University in the city of Chicago, uh, was all conference there, academic, all-American. Uh, we won conference one of the years that I was there, played with another great group of people and some more um, good coaching and good staff supporting us. And then um, when college finished, there was no pro league for us. So I played semi-pro. I uh, played semi-pro in Virginia Beach, and then I played in Chicago for a couple of years, and then the pro league started up again in 2009, and I tried out for a couple of teams and ended up choosing to play in St. Louis, where I played for two seasons, um, and some of, the, some of the best years of my life for sure, seeing as though my entire life and growing up, all I wanted to do was play on the national team, and while I never made it to represent the United States and play on the national team, uh, I don't think I ever thought pro was an option and uh, couldn't have asked for a better career and a better ending. Nice. Well, that's great. So at some point, you had to stop playing a lot earlier than you'd hoped. So tell me more about that. Um, sure. So actually, it was preseason in uh, the first season I played in St. Louis. So I hadn't even had a contract yet. And I got injured um, by one of my teammates, unfortunately, in practice. And I tore the labrum in my hip, which you can't do anything about in the short term. So I was just told to play it out for the rest of the season. And then in the off season, they do surgery to fix it. And so I had surgery and uh, started to heal and mend with the uh, hope of playing a second season, which usually started up around March. And my first surgery was in like September. So I had a decent amount of time, but Unfortunately, it just wasn't healing right. But so I had a decision to make at that point. Um, probably a smart decision might have been to just not play and have it fixed. But I decided to, to play a second season. Wasn't quite sure that I'd get another opportunity. Uh, it was very, very competitive. Definitely the top league in the world at the time. And it was an opportunity I didn't want to pass up. So I decided to play a second season. And in doing so, I ended up um, completely ruining the hip that had the torn labrum in the first place. But even worse the other side from all the compensation and all of the, the weird way, oh, my apologies, uh, all the weird ways that I was playing because of my injured hip, I ended up ruining the other one. So I had tears in, in the cartilage. I had tears in the ligament that connected the joint. The joint was so loose that it had to be sewn together. Uh, I had bone spurs. There's everything that could go wrong in both hips was wrong. And um, I made it through the second season um, but by the end of it, I could hardly walk. And so I went to a different surgeon and a specialist. And um, after my first surgery, um, he, I had two surgeries about six weeks apart. And after those first two, he basically sat me down and said, listen, your hips are in such bad condition that you should probably not play soccer anymore. And in addition to that, you shouldn't do anything high impact. And I go, oh, so does that mean like anything with 
like running into people. He's like, no, high impact means running. So pretty much swimming and cycling are the only things that are good for you. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Right. <laughs> I mean, first no soccer. And now you're going to tell me that I can't do anything that involves running. And so I think at first I was okay with it because I was sort of didn't accept it. And um, I, I started to rehab and get a little better. And then the, the left side got really bad again. And turns out a chunk of cartilage had ripped off and I had to have another surgery where they did a microfracture. And that's when he told me, all right, this is a little bit more serious than I thought before. You need a hip replacement, but you're 26 years old. And that's not something that I'm willing to do. And I don't think it's a good idea. So the only thing that's really going to work for you is to truly take care of your hip and, and make sure you don't do anything high impact. And I think at that point is when it really started to sink in that, man, my life is definitely way different than it has been for the first 20 years of my life, uh, 26 years of my life. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. Uh, definitely went through a phase of depression where I just, I just didn't know what to do. And I don't think I knew what was causing it, but I think it was just the lack of endorphins and everything that you get from working out on top of my identity being tied to being an athlete and being a really good athlete and all of that being taken away at once. Uh, in addition to right at that same time, I had finished grad school uh, and I was always an incredible student. I was fortunate. Um, and so it's like everything that I really excelled in and hung my hat on for my entire life disappeared overnight. And, um, it just, I mean, I lost a bunch of weight, just couldn't really eat so much. I wasn't socializing. Uh, I was sort of a mess, but I would say the only thing noticeable on the outside was the fact that I had lost weight outside of that. It seemed like I was normal, but I just was really unhappy. Um, and that kind of continued and I've had surgery since then too, as it continues to deteriorate. But you know, right away I picked up boxing, which was not on the list of recommended activities, <laughs> But through, through training for boxing, I sort of started to feel like myself a little bit more again because I was pushing myself and I was sort of setting goals and I knew I had things I wanted to achieve and so I was able to back out how can I get there and set goals, push myself, do things that I didn't want to. And that was how I spent my entire life. And, and so I started to feel normal again, but still wasn't quite myself. And my hip, I couldn't even tie my shoes because my hip hurt so bad. So eventually I got out of that. And um, a guy I was dating at the time was into cycling. And so I started to, to ride and fell in love with cycling, and which obviously was one of the things I should be doing. Fell in love with cycling, started riding again, then actually got into the amateur racing scene here in Chicago. And then I started competing. And I was like, all right, when I started to compete and I started to be able to push myself against other people, that was another piece of me that I got back. So now I was training and now I was competing. And those were two big pieces of playing pro in my entire life that came back. And I started to feel a little bit more alive again. And I just knew I still wasn't 100% right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I was racing and all the while I was brand new at the sport and people have been doing it for a while and I still expected to finish first. And I was terrified when I wasn't winning and when I wasn't doing well and I just felt useless and I couldn't quite figure out what the problem was. So it just, it was years of slowly getting little pieces back, but not exactly knowing why I didn't feel a hundred percent or, or like, I can't even say the real me because where I'm at now, I recognize the real me is different than the way I spent my life. But um, these little things of, of training and competing really started to bring back some of that. 
Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So that was a huge part of your, your turning point. I know that um, at some point, sideline athletes have to make a mental turn of turning more towards acceptance. And I know that's a process. Um, some days you think you've accepted it and then you realize a couple months later, you're just mad, you know, right? Um, so talk to me a little bit about that transition process of that turning point. And was there somebody that was instrumental in that? I mean, obviously getting the ability to compete in a new sport and have that same athletic mindset applied to a new situation helped, but I just speak into that a little bit for us. Sure. So I think um, along the way, there were little things that started to come back uh, for a while, for years, I couldn't watch soccer and it was hard because all the people I'd been close with at that point were my pro teammates or my college teammates. My best friend just retired last year, two years ago from the sport, my college roommate about a year before that. So everybody I knew was still in it and it was really hard. Like I couldn't watch it. Couldn't even go to my nephew's soccer games. Couldn't go. My brother still plays. Um, he plays in a men's league. Couldn't go to anything. Couldn't be around it. And so once I started to, to ride and, and be a little bit more competitive again, I could watch it. And I started to enjoy watching the World Cup or to watch the pro games, uh, be able to go watch my best friend play. But um, that still wasn't full acceptance for me. And what's interesting is while those scenarios brought back pieces of me and I felt more alive and more like myself, it wasn't until this turn from a few months ago, I'm talking seven years after I lost the ability to play, that I actually accepted it for the first time. And it had nothing to do with competing in another sport. It had nothing to do with being able, <clears throat> pardon me, being able to work out again. It had everything to do with my mental state of being and where I found my value as a human being. And um, the, the really close friend of mine, such a close friend, he's one of those friends that he doesn't sugarcoat anything. It's like he cares too much to sugarcoat. And for a long time, he tried to hammer home some of these things of that I was too performance-based. And in terms, some people call it a perfectionist, but the way that I look at it is performance-based of if I'm not performing, if I'm not competing, if I'm not winning, what am I? Spent my entire life being the best in school, being the best on the field, even in basketball. And then all of a sudden it was taken away and felt like even social situations were hard for me because it felt like if I didn't say the right thing, I wouldn't be accepted. Uh, even random strangers I'd pass in the forest preserve on the bike. I'm like, well, if they pass me and I'm not going faster, then they're going to think I'm terrible. I don't even know you. Why, why do I care what you think about me? But my self-worth and my love and belonging was tied up in what other people thought of me. And, and tied up in performance and how I did and what I brought to the table and how good I did instead of me just being me. And I, I, he tried to hammer that home for years. And I don't know what about, you know, it's one of those things in life where I, it's the timing's just right. Or maybe you've done enough mental work and enough work along the way that finally enough of that wall had been chipped away that it sort of got through. But it just, I was accepting enough of, of his words this time around. And I, I realized, oh my goodness, you're right. Like, I don't love myself. And I think that me as a human being is only what I do and not who I am just innately. And um, it was a wake up call. And it was sort of sad. It was really hard at first and really sad because it was like, just spent 33 years of my life not loving myself and not thinking I was enough. And it definitely made me sad. And it 
was hard to get through. But once I kind of got through it, I was like, okay, well, that's where I was. Now, how do I move forward? And how do I tie, how do I learn to love myself and see my identity as, as me and not what I do? And that was a lot of reflection and a lot of work on gratitude and joy and happiness. And um, I took a lot of personal work and it was some support from other people for sure. But at the same time, I needed to be able to find the courage and the strength to dive into those areas that were a little bit scary from my past and from being tied to my performance in order to get through it. And um, now having sitting where I'm, where I am, see my struggle with losing my career, with losing sports and my ability to play from being sidelined. Uh, for me, it was all tied to this one mental issue. And um, it's something that I see in a lot of people, um, both adults, people of all ages, uh, and you can see it develop. I see it developing in my nephews. And it's something that it's, it's, it's hard to see because when people have the unfortunate luck of being sidelined and losing something like sports it's really hard to work through that mental side of it um but at the same time it's in my opinion the only thing that matters wow okay that was really good um yeah there's a lot to that and just the athletic identity and performance and value um that you quite a progression of of thought there i that's great that you've been able to kind of come on the other side and realize that it's not your performance. It's not your, what you can output that gives you value, but who you are as a person is valuable. Um, and I think that's very relatable to other sideline athletes. Um, not just sideline athletes though, like you said, just people in general, mm -hmm. um, realizing that your value and worth isn't defined by what you can offer, but you have value and worth just because who you are, you're unique. There's nobody else like, you, you know, yep. um, that being said, being an athlete has shaped you and having the characteristics of an athletic identity, um, a mental mindset, the athletic mindset, if you will, um, is a part of you. So I know you started your own business. Tell me a little bit about how the skills that you learned, like what made you a great athlete, how those transferred over in business and entrepreneurship. I think there's a lot of individual characteristics that you tend to see in athletes that definitely translate well. And those are just the ability to work hard. Um, I see, you know, there certain sports have more hands-on coaching than others. I know in soccer in particular, you know, for 45 minutes at a time, sure, your coach could be screaming at you from the sideline, but there's no plays that you run. Um, you have to rely upon your teammates to make in-the-moment decisions, and you have to be able to figure out how to do things on your own, take the initiative. Um, initiative is a huge thing that I, I think translates well, being able to problem-solve and not necessarily need to have your hand held. Um, but the, the hard work is another thing. You see in athletes the ability to set goals and then back it out and figure out how am I going to get there. And that's something that is really important in, um, in the business world and both the, the people that I'm fortunate to work with in addition to running the business itself. You have to be able to, to set your plan, uh, work your plan, um, and plan your work. And sometimes it's not work that's pretty. You know, you're, it, it's like it's no different than when you're the first one to practice working on if it's basketball, maybe it's free throws or, or um, in soccer, it could be long balls or foot skills. 
Uh, if you have extra work you need to be doing, you need to be there earlier. You need to be doing practice twice a day when other people are doing once a day. It's not always pretty, but you have to be willing to do it. And athletes have the ability to do that because that's, that's what you do. That's what you spend your life doing. So that definitely helps as well. Uh, the ability to work in teams is huge. I don't know any business that, that runs um, independently where people are in silos or in their own little bubbles where they don't rely upon other people. And in, in my team in particular, I'm so lucky to have an extremely strong team. And the teamwork, the ability to rely upon others and to trust others, to push each other and hold each other accountable, it's something people have a hard time doing is holding each other accountable. All of those things you learn in sports and you're, you're on the field or on the court uh, wherever you are, you're you're working with your teammates on a day in and day out basis. You have to be comfortable with them. You have to trust them. You have to put your your own fate and successes and failures in their hands. And the same thing exists here in the business world, or at least in my business and every other business that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing, uh, quite honestly, the biggest thing that translated for me is leadership. Um, is is understanding how to motivate people and understanding that all the people you work with, all the people you're surrounded by, they don't all operate the same way. So how do you get the most out of them and how do you work with them to maximize their potential? And each person has to be different, but yet you need everybody to maximize the potential to get to the end goal. And that's the same thing that happens with captains in sports is you have to know your teammates. You have to know their weaknesses. You have to know their strengths and you also know that your team is only as strong as the weakest link. And so you're making sure you're focusing on everybody and that everybody is just as important as your number one and your number two. Um, it's also understanding how to work with, as a captain, as a leader on a team, you have to be able to work with your team, but then you're also working with your coach. And you're not always going to see eye to eye. So it's learning to have those disagreements and arguments and um, what is that good book about winning friends and influencing others? Um, that's what the life of sports does for you is it teaches you how to do those things. And so I think leadership is hands down the thing that, um, translated the most for me and has helped me be successful, uh, in my team right now is, is the ability to lead them. There is such a talented group of people. They don't need much. They just need to be led. They need to be shown the way, given the right resources and, um, led in the right way and they'll do the rest. That's, that's great. Sounds like athletics have served you really, really well in life and have just kind of set you up for success in your business career. So that's, that's great. Um, tell me if, so there's been some, a lot of positive things that have come from you being an athlete. What about the career ending injury? Would you, is there anything that you've been able to find positive coming forth from that, that has um, just become something that you can appreciate about, like maybe you wouldn't choose it for yourself, but you can appreciate now looking back. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of things. For one, this business wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for that uh, injury. I had wanted to, so I played domestically and I had wanted to play internationally. I had a, a couple of offers, um, Spain, Chile, and uh, Sweden was the other place that I was looking at playing. So I was going to be headed overseas somewhere um, exploring the world, playing soccer. And then when that got taken away, decided to start the business. So um, what we've got going on here at Newforic wouldn't exist without that. And you, it translates to the people that I, I work with. And you look at, um, they've all grown tremendously as, as human beings and individuals, not just in their work, but in their personal lives of, 
of emotional intelligence and being able to um, just, just their lives. Like they've grown so much and that's where I, what I find purpose in, in, in what I do. And that wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be where they are in their lives if it weren't for the business, if it weren't for that injury. Um, And it's just a good example of understanding that certain things are just not in your control. And I think this, that drove it further home for me. And my life is an example to the rest of the people that I work with and the rest of the people that I'm around as well. And so I think they can all see it, but um, you know, growing up my, my dad, well, he had stopped drinking before I was born, but he's an alcoholic. And so the serenity prayer was something that was constantly, constantly mentioned and, and a big point of discussion in our house. And it's sort of what I look at this injury as of understanding that I can't control what happened. I can't control what happens to my body. I can't change it. But what I can change is what happens after the fact. And um, that's what, if, if it weren't, this is like the biggest example I have in my life and the biggest um, case in point of that serenity prayer and, and the understanding that you can't focus on things you can't control, but if you maximize what you can control and you do the most with what you're given, that there's nothing better in life, that that's what you're meant to be doing. And if it weren't for this injury, I don't know that I'd fully grasp that. I don't know that I would be where I'm at personally with, with loving myself and finding my value in my being instead of what I'm offering and what I'm doing if it weren't for that. Uh, so I feel like every aspect of my life goes back to that moment in time and the inability to play soccer. Hmm. Wow. That's really good. Um, thanks for sharing that. So along that line and last question, um, if you were able to go back you know, knowing what you know now, if you were able to go back to yourself that first week, that first month after you were told, this is it. No, really, Erin, like this is it. Um, what would you tell yourself? I don't know. Um, it's hard because I think when you're, when you're in it, it's almost like nothing, that wall is so thick that nothing penetrates. But to me, it goes back to the, the quote that I love above, above all else. It's sitting on my desk. It's on my mirror in my bedroom that I look at every single day. And it's, um, Brene Brown, who's a, science, research scientist. I also want to call her a philosopher, though I don't think she'd call herself that. Um, but it's, it's choose courage over comfort. And it's, you have a choice. You can choose courage or you can choose comfort. And this whole process, when you're in it and when you're, when you can no longer play, you have the decisions to make of, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit, I don't want to say embarrassing, but there could be some shame involved in admitting that you're struggling with things and that you're having a hard time and that, you're really upset about things because you want to be that brave person who could fight through injury and who, you know, doesn't complain about things, but that's the comfort. That's the easy route. You know, the courageous route is to confront how you're feeling and to be honest about it and to, to be okay with that. And the entire path choosing comfort is going to only delay the process, but choosing courage and, and choosing to, to fight that battle and to go through the dark moments and to truly wrestle with it, that's what takes courage. And when you choose courage over comfort each and every day, you're going you're gonna to be okay. There's just no denying it. It doesn't matter what your path looks like, you're going to be okay when you choose to be courageous instead of just be comfortable. So I think I would probably just hammer that home every single day 
maybe put post-it notes all over my room and all over my house until it sinks in. It could take a while, but eventually it will. And um, I think that would have made a huge difference. Right. Yeah, I really, I really like that. That resonates um, because I know as athletes, we're told that, you know, I think we define courage very singularly and that's just never give up, never give up. But at some point you're told you have to, um, or you might be told you have to, those of us who are sideline athletes who are listening today. Um, and the courageous thing to do is to accept, come to terms and move forward and find that meaning and value um, in other ways. And like you said, something I'm sure you have to tell yourself a lot. And I like the idea of putting post-it notes everywhere because um, it's not a one and done. It's a constant, you know, it's going to come back. You're going to be hurting. There's going to be weeks that you do great. There's going to be weeks that it all comes back and it feels like it was yesterday. Um, but thanks for, for sharing that tip. I appreciate that. And thanks for your time and your sharing your story. Um, we really appreciate it. Anne. Yeah. Happy to, happy to share. It was very, um, obviously a huge part of who I am and what I've been through and something that I'm, I'm passionate about, especially being on the side that I'm at now, having gone through it. And, uh, it's, it sure is hard, uh, in any way you can make it easier for people is just a godsend. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron. You're welcome.